So Molly, I got off the metro on my way to the studio a little early today, and I was pretty psyched because I was desperate for a coffee. So I pulled out my phone to find the nearest coffee shop and realized my phone was dead. What an amateur move, Jim. So you know what I had to do? I had to go for a walk to find a coffee shop. And I had to actually talk to people to find the coffee shop. What a burden. <laughs> you didn't have to have a screen intermediate your relationship with other human beings. It gets worse. It gets worse. I didn't write down the address for the studio. So now I have coffee, but I have no way to get here. Well, you know, I never use an app to get around town. I don't believe I, that you know, for a single second. Pay attention to street names. <laughs> All right. If I'm being honest, while I was waiting for you to get your coffee... I also opened the app to find a scooter that I could take to the next meeting. So I think the point here, Molly, is that we might have a smartphone addiction problem or smartphones just may be the most valuable real estate that there is today in a city. I mean, what matters more, Molly, prime location in the app store or the best brick or mortar location? I don't think it's even a question. Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, Google Maps, Waze, Instacart, even Amazon, they're all transforming how we live in cities all over the world. And the amount of money that is going into all of these apps is astronomical. Well, Molly, let's follow the money. On today's episode of Technopolis, we'll ask why investors in Silicon Valley, from angels to venture capitalists, have been pouring billions of dollars into urban tech startups and what it means for the future of our cities. So stay tuned. Welcome to Technopolis, a new show about how technology is disrupting, remaking, and sometimes overrunning our cities. I'm Jim Capsis. I was a climate negotiator in the Obama administration, and now I advise tech startups. And I'm Molly Turner. I teach urban innovation at UC Berkeley and was the first policy person at Airbnb. Each week for the next eight weeks, we're going to discuss what's happening in Silicon Valley and in City Hall. We'll also discuss what needs to change to make sure technology helps solve more problems than it creates. We want to get at the heart of what tech is trying to do, why, and what it means for the rest of us. We're going to talk about a lot this season. Flying cars, robot baristas, 3D printed houses, food delivery robots, artificially intelligent recycling. But on our first episode, we want to understand the bottom line, the money. So today, we're going to ask, who's funding all this disruption? And what are they even thinking about? Does anyone have a master plan for this technopolis? Or is it just random? We'll talk to tech investor and author Jason Calacanis to find out why investors are pouring billions of dollars into tech startups that are transforming cities, what we call urban tech, and how they envision our urban future. And we'll talk with Warren Logan, a tech-forward city planner with the San Francisco County Transportation Authority, to learn what it's like for city leaders to be on the receiving end of all of this disruption. But before we do, Molly, if I could just bring it all back to the smartphone, I really think it is the reason all this venture capital money has flooded into urban tech in the first place. I mean, wasn't it 2007 when the iPhone came out? Yeah, like 10 years ago. And the App Store launched what, a year later? So it's not a coincidence that companies like Waze and Instacart and Uber launched just a few years after that. And ever since, investors have been falling all over themselves to throw money at those companies. Lyft gets new funding that values the ride-hailing service at $11 billion, and it is coming... reports, Uber has seen the value of its latest venture funding round surge by $1 billion to $2.2 billion. Instacart, an on-demand grocery delivery service, says it has raised $220 million... California-based startup Bird has grown from a $300 million valuation to being worth over... $2 billion in less Airbnb, than that's the online service that lets people rent their homes to strangers 
has raised $450 million in a fundraising valuing the site at $10 billion. It's a website, people. <laughs> of course it's a website. Internet companies are some of the most valuable companies in the world today. Yeah, that comment is totally out of touch. It's really staggering how much money is going into these kinds of companies, Molly. But you'll notice they rarely mention the investors behind these headlines. Firms like Andreessen Horowitz, NEA, Sequoia, Kleiner Perkins, General Catalyst, Union Square Ventures, and on and on. We know the startups they fund, but the venture capitalists themselves, they're just not household names. Actually, they are minor celebrities out here in San Francisco. Fair, fair point. <laughs> Still, I think it's worth clarifying how the business of venture capital influences the way these companies interact with cities. For starters, venture backing puts companies on a totally different timeline than cities. Investors expect returns within just 10 years, while cities plan for 20 or 30 years out in the future. I mean, they're required to plan that far in advance by law. And VCs expect only one in 10 companies they fund to really take off, right? Yeah. So the ones that do make it need to make it really big. I mean, so big that by the time the company goes public or gets bought by another company, it's worth billions of dollars. Yeah. They end up having massive impacts on entire industries and cities. I mean, probably the best example I can think of is Uber. Yeah, it's estimated to be worth something around $100 billion, or at least Jeez. it will be by the time of its IPO later this year. It's also been a game changer for cities, right, Molly, in like yeah. so many ways? I mean, together with Lyft, they helped launch with the gig economy, and it changed the way people get around every day. And so we cover the full range of its effects on cities. I mean, it's also decimated the taxi industry. It might be increasing congestion by pulling people off public transit and adding more cars to the streets. Yeah, I worry about that. Look, however you weigh the impacts, what I want to know is, did Uber's funders understand the kind of impact it would eventually have? Let's go right to the source. We're going to talk to one of Uber's earliest investors, Jason Calacanis. Hopefully, Jason can help us understand the mindset of his fellow venture capitalists who are changing our cities with their dollars, their many, many dollars. When I invest, it's typically two or three people, and they have an idea. So when I invested in Uber, and I was the third or fourth investor in that company, they had two cabs on the road, and they really were pioneering along with Airbnb this concept of, hey, let's let's really reinterpret, let's really look at uh, what the regulations are and and see if we can come up with something that's disruptive and not look at problems as intractable. And so that really is my job as an angel investor is to say, yeah, that problem seems intractable to y'all, but to me, it seems like a one in a hundred chance. And I will bet all day long on one in a hundred chances if I know I can make back more than a hundred times my money. So it's just gambling uh, but a little bit smarter. How do you think about unintended, unexpected consequences of hugely successful startups like Uber and Airbnb as an investor? What is your advice to founders who, you know, are struggling with that? Um, communication is critical. Uh, empathy is critical. Um, not being a douche is critical uh, in your approach to these things. You know, people are always looking for the the downside to these new innovative technologies, and you know, you you. Just, I guess, have to be patient as a founder or investor in these companies and understand that people will be critical of the new. That is the nature of criticism. Something's new. We criticize it. Um, and then over time, some equilibrium occurs. So, so Jason, what is the tech responsibility, whether you're talking about the founder or, or the investors behind the founder to, for example, the city? Yeah, there's a couple of different strategies. You know, if you're somebody like Bird and putting scooters on the street, you may just want to try it 
and see what happens. Another approach is to work with the cities ahead of time. But cities sometimes will take the least, uh, the most regulated. Some cities are corrupt. Some cities have vested interest and, you know, you have to fight them. And this is my advice to founders. If the fight is to benefit your pocket as the founder and the investors, that does not seem noble or wise. And if your fight is to increase consumer choice, lower prices for consumers, those things benefit so many people, you'll have those people fight for you. So given Airbnb and Uber's kind of uh, rocky start with regulators, but also massive wild success um, in building their business, what do you think current investors and founders learn from Airbnb and Uber's past 10 years what founders have learned uh, and investors have learned is that don't be afraid to operate in the real world. Ten years ago in Silicon Valley, if you said, I'm going to build a car company, a rocket company, a taxi company, or uh, a, a hotel company, they'd say, well, why don't you make software for those people? So why was there such a fear from investors of real world kind of tech solutions? Because in the, bad things happen in the real world. And, and not online. It's messy. You're saying it's. You're saying that they, they thought the real world is messy. It's a different set of bad things. Mm. So you know, you could have cyber bullying uh, online, but you could have real world bullying or crime occurring. Traffic accidents. Yeah, I mean, it, I just think people didn't want to deal with those issues. Now, what people have realized is, the harder the challenge, the harder the real world scenario the more defensible and better the business could potentially be. So I have focused the last couple of years on the biggest problems, and I've identified three or four of them that seem intractable, but we will solve eventually. An area I've been looking at a lot is housing and construction. Um, very hard. Education, very hard. And healthcare, very hard. You've got a lot of big players who don't want to see innovation there. They don't want to see margins lowered. They don't want to see competition, and they will pay off politicians, they'll hire lobbyists, there's corruption, you know, they'll really try to stop people. So are you now looking, I mean, as you look to invest in companies, are you more attracted to heavily sure. regulated industries because sure. you see that as an opportunity for disruption? I do, but I'm atypical. What do you think is the typical approach? I mean, it seems like right typical now- Typical approaches don't deal with that nonsense, just really? make software and sell it to people. Are there any other companies you've invested in that you think- have the potential to really impact the future of our cities, you know, 10, sure. 50 years from now? Of course, yeah. Um, Cafe X is a, a robotic coffee machine. Wow. So what? how's that going to change our cities? We no longer need baristas? Well, if you imagine having a 24-hour footprint of about two Coca-Cola machines that could serve you any coffee, any beverage, and food 24 hours a day for a dollar or two less, and you get the product in five or 10 seconds or 30 seconds instead of 10 minutes online. How much do we need an innovation like that? What about like the cafe as an important kind of social space? Sure, still have that if you want it, of course. But does the cafe have to have eight people who are sitting behind a counter taking your precious order? Or do you want to just take out your phone, press a button on your last order and have it come up? Well, you know, Starbucks is doing those pre-orders now. And consumers want that. One of the great ways to build an amazing business in the world is to save people either time or money. You can also delight them. In Cafe X's case, they delight people. Same thing with Uber. It's delightful, saves them time, saves them money. It's a very simple formula. We've noticed that right now, urban tech seems to be a real focus for a lot of investors who previously yeah. just invested in you know, photo sharing apps. Why do you think there's so much interest amongst investors in you know, transportation, construction, housing, startups? Yeah. 
don't give the investors all that much credit. The <laughs> investors just follow what the founders see as the opportunity. Founders uh, are passionate about solving problems. Cities have problems. And so when I looked at, you know, my friends were joking, you should run for mayor. After Trump won, my friends were like, wow, any idiot can hold public <laughs> office. You should run for mayor. Oh, God. <laughs> Literally started as a joke, like at a poker game. And quickly, I my friends who I play poker with put up $2 million for me to run for mayor. So wow. I have a domain name and have a $2 million uh, fund available anytime I want to start this process here. But when I looked at it, I was like, wow, housing, crime, traffic, those would be wonderful problems to solve. Boy, I, I would love to get in there and solve those. Do you think tech startups are better positioned to solve those problems than cities themselves? Well, you got to remember, politicians in government, is lo- they're largely incompetent and they... You know, the best they can do is typically to do nothing and, you know, have gridlock. That's kind of the best that they have to offer. And founders pursuing technological solutions in the democratic capitalist society do much better than governments, typically. But there are some things that governments can do that are extremely powerful, like when we ban plastics uh, and we, you know, provide public public schools for kids, you know, but then things can get corrupt and and. The private market can do better. Hey, Jason, I want to uh, pull back for a minute. Uh, and you said you're thinking about running for mayor. You've been in, in, as an investor. What's the right recipe for bringing together, uh, you know, City Hall and Silicon Valley to try to actually solve some of these problems, or or should they not really be coming together? So it's starting to reach the consciousness of the powerful elite here. One of the funny things that happens when people are rich is they think that they're right about a lot of things. That's not (laughs) exactly always correct in my experience, but it is a phenomenon that occurs. And I'm seeing a lot of rich people, a lot of powerful people considering going into office and trying to solve these problems. So I am very hopeful. So so you're saying that the, the success that tech entrepreneurs and investors have had in the private sector is applicable to solving our is. city's challenges. They're Explain that a little more. Like, what's the what's the nature of problems that makes them easy, easy to solve? Well, I think way? it's optimism and um, not looking at them through the political lens. When Airbnb or Uber went to market to raise money, people were like, that'll never work. This is the reason it won't work. And then other people were like, well, this is obviously going to change the world. And you had this great debate going on. The best solutions are going to be polarizing. And what we have to do is say, let's test things. And I think people move too slow. Speed is really important. I'm in favor of testing, studying the data, and not too much uh, hand-wringing over it. There's so much nimbyism in the world. And I think we're going to have to just decide in certain cities if we're going to be a nimby-driven city and status quo or if we're going to be an innovative city. NIMBY, as in not in my backyard. Thanks for that translation, Molly. But I liked his question. In my experience, NIMBYs don't just frustrate techies. They're also a royal headache for city government officials who are trying to change the status quo. I mean, have you ever, Molly, been to a meeting where they're trying to change parking requirements? I mean, people go totally out of their mind. <laughs> I haven't been to a parking requirement meeting, but I know what you mean. You haven't mean. lived. You haven't lived. <laughs> but, you know, I'm curious, like, why does he have such a negative view of city leaders? Does that come from his experience kind of following Uber, fighting with cities? That alone, I'm sure dealing with taxi unions or groups would be frustrating experience. 
Well, you know, he mentioned that cities need to move faster, uh, and I, you know, tend to agree with that. But what would it take to do that in your experience? Yeah, Molly? faster, but faster working on what problems? Clearly, there's no agreement about which problems even need solving. So, Molly, were you serious with your reaction about the robotic baristas? You seemed like legitimately worried they were going to totally like you know destroy the local coffee shop. Jim, look, I don't care about robotic baristas. I don't even drink coffee. I just think of all of the things that need disrupting in cities. I don't think coffee shops need disrupting. Yeah, but Jason is an investor, and if he can make money by helping, you know, delight customers who may want to actually get a coffee from a robot versus a person, I mean, more power to him. But it seems to me like a very common habit in tech, which is technology in search of a problem to solve. But the bad habit that city leaders really don't like about the tech industry is when startups solve completely different problems than the one the city is focused on. Like, I remember 10 years ago when Uber and Lyft launched in San Francisco, the city was focused on digging this huge hole through downtown to extend our central subway. And then all of a sudden, here comes these cars with big pink mustaches driving all over oh, the place, yeah, I remember those. right? And now everyone in City Hall had to completely refocus all their attention on what to do with the pink mustaches. Well, let's see if the dynamics have changed at all since then and how city officials might be adapting to this venture back world. Let's talk with Warren Logan. He's a transportation planner at the San Francisco County Transportation Authority. He deals with these companies every day. Warren can shed some light on how venture-funded companies are changing his job, for better and for worse, from the city's perspective this time. Warren, thanks for being on our show. So happy to be here. Okay, so real quick, what are the three biggest tech trends impacting your work right now? Three biggest tech trends. The first I've noticed, a lot of companies have started buying each other. The government is now not only negotiating with local companies, we're now taking on multinational, international, multi-billion dollar corporations. Another trend I'm seeing is that these companies are getting smarter about who they're hiring. Before, when I would reach out to the different companies, they'd say, "Ugh, we don't really have a government relations person. We're not sure how to speak your language. What's a permit? And now, you know, I'm, I'm getting calls from other city planners, other bicycle advocates saying, hey, I work for Spin. I work for Skip. I work for Scoot. And I, just like you, have a planning degree. And I know what are the words to get in and have a thoughtful conversation. Third big trend, I'd say automation. That's the next big shift. Self-driving cars, we've got robots out on the sidewalks that can drive themselves. Um, I'm hearing in my elevator that people are talking about drone delivery from Uber. Oh, By geez. the way, Uber is the same building as mine. It's fantastic. Wait, your office, the San Francisco County Transportation Authority, occupies the That's same right. building as Uber headquarters in San Francisco? We were there first by several years. <laughs> so, Warren, you're talking with the startups like Uber, but we heard you're also starting to talk to their investors. Why do you think the investors are an important stakeholder? Like, what role do they play in how Uber or any of the scooter companies do what they do on the streets of San Francisco? I think because, and this is the the friction perhaps that government agencies and private companies in general have is that at the end of the day, you know, my responsibility isn't to make a profit, right? Like governments don't, governments don't typically make a profit. We are also encouraged and really mandated to serve everyone. And that is one of the challenges that we come up against with these other companies. And so to meet with the venture capitalists, for example, I think it's important for us to start not just for the venture capitalists, but to think about Who's pulling the strings and what are their priorities, right? And where can we maybe consider incentivizing or shifting those incentives so that these innovative actors are able to 
meet us in the middle. So you're trying to seed some ideas and say, hey, VCs, if you want the next hot transportation startup, we've got a couple ideas yeah. of areas you should look. Absolutely. That's, that is an option, right? Like government also procures services. Government also procures technology. And, you know, one of the things that maybe there's an area for improvement is showcasing how we can improve together. What are the areas that we have challenges with and, and where there's room for innovation that you can actually partner with the, the government and our different agencies to make for a better transportation outcome. Do you get a sense that uh, that the investors want to invest in companies that are actually selling services and products to city government? I don't get that sense. I think that sometimes they want to avoid us, you know. But on the other hand, maybe it's my job to make <laughs> maybe clear, a leading question, right? There, yeah, yeah, totally. You know, but one of the things that's probably our job too is to make it clear, like why we're also a good partner. And the investors, I think, are figuring out that the companies that are best suited to navigate the permitting process for some of these services, the rights-of-way applications, et cetera, are the ones that are likely to get that investment, right? At some point, you have to demonstrate that your product is not only going to be viable from a a proof-of-concept standpoint, but from a regulatory environment standpoint. So that's where I think we can also play together. So cities are moving a lot faster than maybe the tech community gives them credit for. For sure. But again, I want to reaffirm that it is not our job to meet a pace that is, I think, unsustainable and perhaps even unsafe. Again, we are responsible for stability. And just because someone throws something down on the sidewalk doesn't mean that it's my responsibility to accommodate every single thing that gets dropped off. Some company, um, I won't say their name, had called me one day and said, hey, you know, what do you think about hoverboards? Or what do you think about, you know, um, hovercrafts across the bay. And I'm like, you know, (laughs) to be honest, I don't think that that's solving a problem we have right now. And that, to me, is maybe one of the central issues, is that, you know, government's role is really to make sure that we are, again, being stable, being safe, being equitable. And then the area that we probably need to work harder on is communicating back to the innovators in the space, here are the challenges we're facing. Please help us with these. Um, every so often I get pitched by companies that say, is this going to solve a problem? And it's like, well, why don't you start with one of the problems that we've documented in decades <laughs> worth of planning studies, you know, that say what the problem is. We spent lots of money and time and effort saying what the problem is, and you could just solve one of those issues, right? Warren, so, this like, is your opportunity right now, right here. Tell us what the big what the problem is are. that they should be solving, because unfortunately, I bet many of them aren't reading the 30-year plan. It's funny you should say that, because our agency right now is leading a, a pilot strategy to basically document all of the different short-term challenges that we're facing so that we can go back to the companies and say, all right, the city could potentially be a sandbox. Help us address this problem in the short term. So, Warren, Uber has existed for just under 10 years and seems to have had a massive impact on how we get around cities. What are some of the most surprising impacts that Uber and these other uh, ride-hailing startups have had on urban mobility today? You know, I, my grandmother, one time she told me I was coming home and she said, oh, Warren, I'm, I'm going to take a lift and I'm going to go out with my friends. I've been stuck at home and I can't really drive at night, but now I get to go out. And I was like, that's a really great story. That's, that's exciting that we are providing additional mobility services for people that didn't have them before. 
By that same token, I think it has also encouraged people to consider how much their trip really costs. You know, when you open a Lyft app or an Uber app or a scooter app, et cetera, you now have a price that is associated with going from point A to point B. And that has been one of the biggest challenges that us as transportation planners have really tried to explain to the average mom and pop, right? Like that your journey has a cost associated with it. If you are walking, maybe it's it's free and that you're not having necessarily an impact on the environment. But if you are driving, it has a cost to the environment and ideally to your pocketbook, right? So just by having all of these apps, it has helped people understand what that really means. As a planner, as a city official, what tools do you have in the toolbox and what do other cities have in their toolbox in order to get the tech community to sort of, I guess, solve the problems in the way that the city would like them to be solved as opposed to maybe creating worse situations? I'll talk about a couple. The first is that government does have its regulatory authority. We have created a series of permit structures for many of these different services, and they're slowly helping each of these companies in San Francisco particularly align with our, like I said before, guiding principles for emerging mobility. We have set up a framework for how they can operate in the city. That's tool one. The second is that SFMTA has the authority to change the way our right-of-way actually works, and, and I'll explain that a little bit. If you want a city that is primarily focused on transportation, that is um, transit-focused, that is bike-focused, that is walking-focused, right, which is, in fact, San Francisco is a transit-first city. That is that is our mission, is to encourage people to walk, to bike, and to take transit for the primary ways they get around. If we want that in our right-of-way, we can, in fact, designate red carpet lanes for our buses and for our trains. That's something that we've started doing for the last several years, really. If we want more streets to encourage people to bicycle, we can create buffered bike lanes. We can create protected bikeways. We've been doing that all over SOMA. We could widen our sidewalks to encourage, again, more people to walk. That's another tool, creating the right-of-way that we want to shape for people to change their behavior. (laughs) The third, though, is about collaboration. So, for example, you know, we have... Bay Area Bike Share, now Ford Go Bike, which is now going to be owned by Lyft, so I'm not sure what they're going to call it, right? But we have the option of partnering with some of these companies that could potentially meet our goals for, let's say, biking, getting to transit, and walking. And again, partner together to encourage people to use that behavior. But I think that the toolbox has to be multifaceted and to consider which tool is right for the right situation. So, Warren, you just exude passion for this subject, for transportation, for technology, why aren't you in a startup? Why are you in the government? You know, people ask me that a lot. And I'm I'm so happy to be a part of the government because I wake up every day thinking, like, how do I make the city better? And there's a commitment that I've seen and a passion with so many of the people that I work with and work for. And I want to be a part of that. The other thing, too, is that I think, again, these companies are thinking about, you know, what happens in the next 50 days? And I want to dream for what happens in 50 years. I love playing in that space. Warren, What's your pitch to the smartphone users to become more critical consumers of all of this new tech? What should they do? Think a little bit about whether or not they need to have the thing they want right now or if they can wait, right? That's, you know, delayed gratification is pretty important. And and so if you feel that you need to hop in a car right this moment because you're in a hurry, please think about whether or not a bike might be just as fast. On my way down to the studio, I realized, oh, the fastest way to get down here is actually a Ford Go bike. And sometimes that is not an obvious thing for people to think about. If only we had an app for that. Totally. Oh, my God. Warren, thanks so much. Thank you, Warren. 
I'm not surprised, but Warren and Jason have pretty different perspectives. Yeah, let's break it down, Molly. So Jason said that cities need to be more responsive to businesses, right? Like they should test things. And I, and I like that. Um, but, you know, Warren also said that's not his job. Or it's not his job to respond to every tech startup's desire for him to like try something out because he's thinking one longer term than the tech companies are. And he has to think about serving everyone, not just, you know, a particular neighborhood or type of customer. You know, I actually agree with both of them, if that's possible. I think cities need to be more responsive to new ideas, particularly ideas that they've never thought of before. But at the same time, I agree with Warren. You know, cities need to have a clear set of priorities and only work with startups that are helping them achieve those priorities. Just because everybody's obsessed with some newfangled tech thing doesn't mean it's going to stick around for more than a year. Even the company that invented it will. And so the city shouldn't just drop everything to go make way for that. You mean you don't want to take a hovercraft across the river? Oh, God. Speaking of things that don't help cities' priorities, I mean, I don't think hovercrafts are going to solve the kind of congestion problems Warren's worried about on a daily basis. But what is refreshing about Warren is he has a totally collaborative approach. He wants to hear from tech. He wants to talk to the, the venture investors. He does suggest that you know increasingly more and more folks with like an urban policy background, and you're a great example of that, Molly, who you go into tech, that's helpful, right, to have that cross-pollination. So another interesting tension that I noticed is that the companies that Jason invests in, like Uber, are really good at delivering instant gratification to their customers, whereas Warren is suggesting people should delay their own gratification for the public good by, for example, like waiting for the bus instead of hopping in their car. I'm really curious what you think about both of those perspectives, Jim. Yeah, I, I don't think appealing to people's better angels alone is going to work. Also, Jason says the best way to delight people and give them what they want is not to make them wait. Warren's approach only works if we have another better alternative, right? So it's not a choice between a 15-minute Uber ride or a 45-minute train ride with three switches, right? And so I'm actually a little worried that the more we get used to the instant gratification that the private sector is providing us, we're going to stop investing in these alternate modes because they're so dissatisfying to us and they'll just be worse and worse options that we'll never be able to compete anymore. But Molly, the government has a role to play there. That's when regulation should come in. Yeah, regulate and price things so people are incentivized to behave toward the common good. But if anything gives me hope, it's that Warren's office, the San Francisco County Transportation Authority, is in the same building as Uber's office. I mean, those elevator rides must be super awkward sometimes. But, you know, just like the subway was the great equalizer, maybe the office elevator will be the great equalizer, at least between the city's planners and the tech disruptors. Okay, Molly, so assume that tech and city leaders have a kumbaya moment in their office elevator. What do you hope they accomplish? Okay, I hope city government can do a better job of articulating what kinds of problems they want tech to help solve. I agree with that. And I hope that tech founders and investors will actually take inspiration from that. I mean, I can't tell you how many of my business school students have pitched me on new transportation startup ideas without doing 
any research into what folks like Warren at the SFCTA have already said are the areas that need innovation. Oh, poor Warren with that 30-year report that he kept talking about that probably no one's read None of my students him. are reading the report, I'll tell you. <laughs> okay, Jim, so what do you hope these miraculous elevator encounters will result in? I would like to see both city leaders and the tech companies realize that they're not enemies. I mean, government isn't just an obstacle standing in the way of progress. And the tech companies aren't just disruptive, greedy capitalists looking to make a quick buck. And I hope that they realize that they need each other. I mean, regulation can be a good complement sometimes to good business ideas. It could prevent, frankly, the worst decisions by companies uh, that otherwise they would make without regulation. And it helps them thrive. And disruptive creativity can break through political gridlock and help us see new possibilities. But, you know, when I hear tech founders say the words change the world, what I really hear is global domination. But, Molly, come on. You worked at a company that's guilty of world-changing ambitions. Airbnb, right? Yeah. Airbnb's founders, I believe, have genuine social impact goals. I can say that from firsthand knowledge. But the company, like all other tech startups, is faced daily with difficult decisions between increasing that social impact versus increasing the valuation. And those two goals cannot always be aligned. Speaking of valuations, it's expected that this year, Airbnb, Uber, Lyft, and many of the biggest urban tech startups, they're all going to go public because you know what? They've hit their 10-year mark and you know the investors expect their returns now. That's an amazing end to the decade of the iPhone. In just 10 years, that little device has spawned a bunch of startups that are now worth hundreds of billions of dollars and have completely transformed our lives. I mean, 10 years. Who knew? It was actually Steve Jobs, the biggest urban tech disruptor uh, oh, in, in history, you know, RIP. <laughs> yeah. Imagine what we have in store for the next 10 years. If anything, what this episode has taught me is it's going to be really hard to predict. Thanks for joining us here in Technopolis, and we hope you'll come back throughout the season as we shine a light on so many ways technology is improving and upending our urban lives. Over the course of these conversations, companies with which Jim or I have business relationships might come up. We'll always make sure to let you know about them at the end of the show. For this week, I want to note again that I was an early employee at Airbnb. I also advise Spin, one of the scooter startups that was mentioned by Warren. And that's it for the first episode of Technopolis. We'll be back next week when Molly and I take a wild ride exploring all the places autonomous vehicles might take us. Sex, vomit, and AVs. What could go wrong? Until then, I'm Jim Capsis. And I'm Molly Turner. Nicole Fladow is the City Lab editor and our North Star. And we couldn't have made the episode without the keen insights of City Lab reporter Laura Bliss. Virginia Laura is our associate producer. Lizzie Jacobs is our executive producer. And our theme music is by Copilot. If you like what you heard today, visit www.citylab.com for new stories every day on the future of cities. And just a friendly reminder, subscribe to Technopolis on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. And tell a friend. Pro tip, it's free.